Welcome to another episode of What's Up With DJ. I'm your host, DJ. Each week, I bring you topics about current events, career development, finance, holistic living, life hacks, and stories of inspiration and humor. So uh, be sure to subscribe, follow, comment, and leave a review on Apple Podcast. Your thoughts, opinions, and comments are always encouraged and appreciated. So with that being said, let's get into the show. My guest this week is Dr. Kathy Owens Oliver. Dr. Owens Oliver, a.k.a. Edu Problem Solver, a national speaker, thought leader in the education industry and CEO of Educational Effectiveness Group, a coaching and consulting firm in Charlotte, North Carolina. She is also the founder of Girls Got Life a nonprofit organization that provides mentoring and leadership development for preteens in high-need communities. She is the author of the number one bestseller, Why Schools Fumble, Applying the End-Zone Mindset to School Improvement. She helps educators solve their biggest problems and improve schools from the inside out. She has traveled the U.S. and Canada training teachers and school leaders and helped countless educators increase their impact and income within and beyond the classroom. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me here. Yes, I uh, love educators and I think that they're like the backbone of just, you know, they should be paid the most and uh, congratulated the most, but it's always seemed to be the opposite when it comes to educators who do and they do so much, especially for our kids. So how long have you been in, in the education industry? Good question. Over 25 years. So wow. I have lots of experience at different levels in different states. Yes. So what made you decide that you wanted to become a teacher and also wanted to teach teachers? Good, good, good question. Thank you for asking me that. All my life, I wanted to be a teacher. And I say to people all the time, I wasn't one of those children that was enamored with McDonald's and wanted to work there one day or that kind of thing. <laughs> I have always wanted to be a teacher. As a little child, I cried when my siblings went to school and I couldn't go to school yet. Oh, wow. Um, I just think I've just been in love with learning and the Teaching teachers part has just been a bonus. I never imagined that. I just imagined going to college to become a teacher and being an English teacher for the rest of my life. And so when doors opened for me to teach teachers and not just teaching and coaching teachers, but teaching the teachers who teach the teachers by working with college faculty, it was just so phenomenal. So that was something I didn't plan, didn't see coming, but it's been really exciting doing this work. Yes, it sounds like you sort of followed the calling and then you just sort of followed life as it unfolded. Yes, absolutely. And I would think the biggest blessings always come to us when we do, when we just follow our, our calling and we follow uh, sort of how the wind blows us like, OK, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I'm going to follow through and then you go, yeah. oh, that's what that was all about. You know? Yes. So yes. Listen absolutely. To your story, it sounds like you, you definitely did that. So how can we improve our uh, 
our um, school system because we know that our school system is broken, and I know that that's the number one thing that you're you're involved in and you're trying to fix. And I love that you say that you're fixing it from the inside out. What does that mean? So improving school from the inside out means you work within the capacity in the building in order to change and reform what is taking place. And in areas in a building where you don't have capacity, you don't have the know-how, you don't have the competence, then you build that, you build capacity. And school leaders, principals, administrators, whatever you wanna call them, many of them have not been trained on how to stretch their staff and build capacity. But that's how you do it from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And when you say build capacity, you mean add more teachers or how do you how do you build capacity? Well, in some cases, if they are understaffed, then they do need to add more teachers. But of Mm -hmm. the teachers and non-instructional staff that they have, they have to put proper protocols, processes and professional development in place to Mm -hmm. teach and train. And that's what builds capacity. I'm talking about intellectual capacity or intellectual Mm. uh, capital, what teachers know and are able to do. And that is something that needs to change over time. Yes, yes. Because I think that's amazing that when you say intellectual uh, uh, capital, because to me, if the teachers understand how to reach, because I was, you know, I'm dyslexic and I was, uh, when I was in second grade, the you know someone came to the classroom pulled me out of the class and started asking me all these questions you know these testing questions i'm like what is this about no one explained to me why i was being asked these questions or why was i pulled out of class from other students and ultimately um they brought me back to the class and you know we continued as before but then they eventually called my parents and said, well, he's dyslexic. And I'm like, I don't know what this means, <laughs> but they just gave me a pair of glasses um, after that. And that was it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And you went through school with some teachers understood how to teach you. And then some teachers just did not know how to do it. They didn't know what to do with you, you right. know? Right. So if they teach, they, if the teachers had the capacity, intellectual capacity, then to reach someone who has dyslexia and understood what that was, then I would have had a total different experiences with those teachers who just didn't know what to do. Yes. And I want to clarify, I'm not saying that they don't have the intellectual uh, capital, but sometimes they don't have the capacity and the competence to do certain things because no one has trained them. And there mm. is no way in any any other industry in the country, there is no way that you can work in an environment for six weeks, 10 weeks is the student teaching internship for most, and that's going to prepare you for everything you will do on the job for a 30-year career. It's it's impossible. So they come into teaching underprepared, ill-prepared, or not trained adequately, and then a lot of them remain that way, very well-meaning, but they remain that way for a very long time. And the world is changing. Children are changing. We have to change the way we do school. Yeah, I definitely agree with that 100 percent. And I didn't even realize that that, that the, the training was that short. Yeah. You know, yeah. And the, the most amazing teachers that I had, they had went on their own, on their own money, their own dime and got additional coaching. Yes. And those were the ones that were the best teachers and knew exactly how to get me started, you know? Yes. So 
but it's a shame that, you know, teachers have to pull money out of their own pocket just to become better teachers. Right. Absolutely. So how do we keep our kids engaged? Because it could be the possibility that someone listening to this program who may not have the possibility to have access to you will we'll definitely tell you how to get access to Dr. Kathy. Uh, but it may not have access to you yet. And they want to know how can they reach their students better? Uh, maybe there are some some tactics or some strategies that are in place. So where to go to find those strategies? Sure. So there are so many resources online about getting to know students, understanding something about their background. There's a lot of material and research out there about why it's so important to understand child development, what kind of surveys and informal assessments teachers can conduct to get to know a student better. But I like to think of it as uh, teaching the student not so much as the content. So what I mean by that is, yes, I'm teaching English, but I'm teaching David English. And what happens is I get prepared as a young teacher in college in my senior year alone. I get prepared to teach English, but I don't get prepared to teach David. So teachers Um. need strategies and skills that include how to survey students, why it's important to have a one-on-one with them, not just reaching out to parents, but what to ask the parents, uh, what kinds of questions to ask them, what questions to ask the student, paying attention to what they write, what they say out loud in class, and what that tells you about their family background or any other dynamics. And then the big one is recognizing trauma or adverse childhood experiences. And if teachers aren't trained how to recognize that, if they don't know what to look for in a student like you who who was dyslexic, if they don't know what to look for with a child that might be hearing impaired or have some kind of visual impairment, then that child could get mislabeled. So those are some of the strategies that they need to use in order to understand the student in and of himself and not just the content. Focus on who's the student and then now how do I shift and shape content to meet his needs in a way that he or she can understand it. Yes. I like what you said about about possibly misdiagnosing um, a child of, you know, the I mean, so many kids are had tumultuous yes. home situations and it will affect the how you learn and your ability to learn. And you, that could be as projected as they don't care. And it's not that they don't care. You're just trying to get over what you saw last night. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and being able to see that go, oh, OK, I know what that is. I know how to approach that to maybe possibly pull that child in to uh, maybe have another conversation in a proper way. That's not going to offend anyone, but it's maybe alleviate some of that stress so that they can um, actually, you know, participate in a way that's so they can learn. So I think that's definitely key to be able to uh, to see what to do um, when you can see that there's a problem there and maybe to put your finger on it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So what is one of your biggest success stories? Oh, wow. I think my biggest in the classroom would be dealing with a student named Greg, who came to my ninth grade class with a plan to drop out 
in December of that year and not remain for the second semester. He was almost 16, which means he had been held back for him Mm. to be in a ninth grade class. And he knew that he would be eligible to get his GED after his birthday and that second semester of the freshman year. And I begged him to stay in my class because I understood right up front that he had been mishandled by previous Mm. teachers who didn't do what you and I talked about a few minutes ago, got to know him and any trauma that he experienced, what his home life was like, his self-esteem. And having not done that, they were teaching curriculum, but they were not teaching Greg. So I convinced Mm. him to stay. And you know what? He said, I'm going to stay in your class only. I didn't know that that meant (laughs) he was going to come to first period and then walk home after my class. So I found out two and a half weeks later or so from the principal that he had been leaving school every day after my class and not coming back the rest of the day. So the principal Mm -hmm. said, this is a truancy issue. We have to suspend him. We have to expel him for the rest of the year. I had already met with the parent. The parents did not know. He was leaving school after my class. And so he'd been doing his homework. He'd been doing writing assignments. He was paying attention in class. He was sharing his input with me. I would meet with him one-on-one to talk about other literature I hadn't assigned to other students because I was using content that I knew would interest him and Mm -hmm. reach him. So I begged the principal to look away, act like you don't know this about him. He's leaving after December anyway. This is Mm -hmm. my one chance to get through to this kid. And I'm just really glad I got that opportunity. Because he would have got expelled. He wouldn't have never came back at all. Yes. Yes. And I think you knew that. You knew that if you expel him, it's it's done. He's not coming back. Yeah. So it was great that you found a way to engage him. Because that's the the thing that I think that and also he knew that you cared, you know, because it's going to come back just for one uh, for one uh, class, you know, that let him know that okay, this person I want to be involved with because I know she cares about uh, about me. And but, you know, still, obviously, he needed additional um, ways to engage him to for him to continue. And I think that's amazing. I'm quite sure that definitely changed the trajectory of his life. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, you know, I don't think that I'm special because of it. I think that I'm demonstrating effectiveness. And when I tell this story, I say to educators all the time, this is not to make you think that I'm a special teacher. It's to demonstrate for you what teaching effectiveness really looks like when you're teaching the child and not just teaching your content. Exactly. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes I had a teacher one time and she was I wasn't getting it. And I was one of those kids that could not get to the get to the board. And I could do all the problems. No problem. But I couldn't explain it. And she always wanted you to explain what you did, could not do it. This is like third grade. And she would call me every morning to the board and to say, you know, and I would do the problem, get it right. And she's like, well, no, DJ now explain. And uh, couldn't do it. And sometimes I could get through it. And then, you know, sometimes most of them I couldn't. And one day she got so frustrated. She just chewed me out in front of everybody, you know, and I was so embarrassed. And because, you know, she she I think she just became because she couldn't reach me. I think she became frustrated because she couldn't because she was doing everything she possibly could to get through. And she wasn't getting through. She just wasn't trained how to do it and didn't know how to. I didn't think she knew I was dyslexic. 
And um, and ultimately, I after that happened, I totally gave up. I I, I had an attitude of I don't care. Wow. You know? So um, so yeah, it's it's just it's absolutely crazy to me. But I saw her again years later. I gave her a big hug. I didn't even think about that until at that moment. <laughs> But, uh, but you know, it's, it's unfortunate. I think that happens a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And how many students like you and Greg are in the school system right now? It's, it's interesting to me that I used an example of a male student and you're a male student. So mm. boys in particular may be difficult to reach if teachers don't have strategies and tactics that they know will work with how boys mm. learn, which incidentally is different from girls. And at no point did she meet with you one-on-one at your seat or somewhere else in the room and say, DJ, you can do this. Tell me what you're thinking. What's in mm-hmm. your head when you write this number on the paper? But she never took that time. And no. then you feel like she didn't care at all. All that coaching what happened on the board. <laughs> yes. So never took that. I mean, probably would have, would have been the way to reach me would sit down with me and walk me through to try to understand what the hangups were. Right. And really what it was that because my brain was doing two things at one time, the embarrassment of being at the board, because that was very nervousing for me to speak yeah. in front of everyone. So that's the number one problem. And then number two, you're trying to do long uh, division <laughs> from yes. the class, embarrassed, <laughs> right. and then trying to figure out how I'm going to explain this. It was just too, it was, it was, uh, it was overload for me at that yeah. age. And sure. she just couldn't see that. She she just, you know, you got the right answer, so you should be able to explain it. She just couldn't make that connection. So yeah. I always went back to if she would have been trained, because she was a great teacher, very smart. Um, but if she had been trained how to do that, it could have been a total different experience for me in that classroom. Right, right. So how do you feel about, you know, what's one of the big topics right now is critical race theory. <laughs> and, uh, and, and some people are very afraid of this topic. And um, it's sort of like the boogeyman. It doesn't even really exist, <laughs> but it is affecting the way people vote and it is affecting conversations. So what is your feeling about how it's being sort of perpetuated in the news? Sure. So I'm careful how I talk about this because people sometimes are always listening for what side are you on as opposed Mm -hmm. to um, what's your knowledge and your experience and how do they parallel. If we in this country think for one moment that the racial divide historically is happenstance, we are not realists and we don't know history at all. And just like certain uh, processes and parameters were put in place to hinder the development of people in color? Yes, affirmative, intentional processes must be put in place now, not only to take up the slack for what was missing before, but to move a whole population of underserved and disadvantaged people forward. And why we're acting like we're beyond that right now, we've come a long way, that perpetuates even more uh, division and bias and racism. It does not. We are reaching back to clean up mistakes we made Mm-hmm. So that we can move a whole, a whole, not some, but a whole group forward together. And I think people want to focus on 
you know, that people just want to draw a line in history, a timeline. Um, they want to make it isolated as an education mm-hmm. issue or isolated at an economic issue or isolated as a, disagre- a geographic issue. But the fact of the matter is there is an underserved population that historically has been neglected and our country in particular, we could talk about the globe, but our country in particular must respond to the mm. mess that has been made. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. my story. And I'm sticking to it. I, I definitely agree with everything you just said. We definitely need to do things differently. Yes. And and definitely, I think the biggest thing is, is before we start voting on a topic, just read and what it is i mean because yes. it's, it's number one it's not even been taught in schools it's something that is taught in college yes and, you know and it's just a subject within college now, it's not even a whole class it's like the day we're going to discuss in this particular course critical race theory yeah. and l- lawyers do that lawyers study critical race theory yeah. so it's just it's sort of like a you know, uh, uh, something that people are afraid of because, but I think it, the bigger conversation, as you just stated, the bigger conversation is, is that, you know, maybe, it, you know, the truth is that we're not teaching it in schools because there's no need to do that because it's not, that is a college course, um, a topic within a college course. Um, we still, it is showing us that there's still a lot of work to do yes. if this is where we're at into our now conversations about it. You know, this is how we're sort of handling it. So, um, so I think there's more to come about, about getting to the real issue in terms of why critical race theory is such a hot topic yes. and the concept of what people are afraid of. Yes. So um, I'm in Virginia. So uh, the big election came up. Uh, recently against um, uh, Yonkin and um, McAuliffe. And one of the things people are saying that he lost because he made a comment during one of the debates. And he said that he felt as though parents um, should not be included in choosing the curriculum for their children. He feel that that's the the role of of experts. And... um, that got a lot of heat when he said that. And I think it actually, for me, my perspective, I think it, it caused him to lose the election. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel that only experts should be choosing our, our curriculum? Do you think parents should be doing that, like the PTA? Or should it be a mixture of experts and parents? How do you think that we should be building our curriculum? Sure, that's that's a good question as well. So we cannot identify a singular separated audience that would be responsible for all parts of curriculum because curriculum is very broad. So when we say parent, as an an educator, an educational expert, every parent out there is not informed about everything they would need to be informed about to drive and dictate curriculum for any and every one of their children at different age groups, grade levels, and perhaps even different schools. Mm-hmm. So, so think about that for a minute. A parent, any random parent that we want to choose, you or me, for example, we do, and, and I have a doctorate degree in education. I was a high school teacher. I teach on the college level. You and I together, as successful as we may be professionally, we cannot determine all of the details and appropriateness in terms of learning levels for all curriculum for any child. That's a big thing. Mm-hmm. But, but that said, 
there is no single expert or single group of experts who can do it either. If so, we'd be doing the opposite of what I said earlier, where I said we need to focus on the learner first and how the content is palatable for that learner, as opposed to just focusing on the content and then um, pushing it down the student's throat. So there should be an informed body of educators, which could could and would include parents. How many educators are parents? But yeah. but yes, it would include parents who over time are consistently looking at curriculum, what is being developed, how it needs to be expanded, what's grade level appropriate, and how does it fit in a learning continuum? So I, I'm not sure what he meant, but I disagree with him if he was saying parents don't know what they need to know to influence curriculum, we need experts. I also disagree that there's some magic experts out there who know all curriculum. You know what I'm saying? It's yes. a blend of people. And then we need to look at curriculum for what? Is it by grade levels or grade bands? Is it by what is age appropriate? Is it by a certain geographic area? What if it's a certain kind of school, a magnet school, a Montessori school, leadership development school, a STEM academy? So it, it was really a loaded question. And it's unfortunate that uh, there wasn't a, a more, a, a broader answer sharing more insight and yeah. perspective yeah he goofed that answer big time you know <laughs> so um but i think that the way i think he was trying to i think what he was trying to say he didn't say it correctly and he kind of flubbed on the answer and it really cost him a yes. great deal because i do feel in his heart that he does want to include parents on some kind of level about what he about deciding that curriculum along with experts Yes. But that's like, man, that's all you had to say, you know, yes. but yes. you know, he, he really did a bad job of answering that question. I went back and listened to the whole um, interview with the whole answers question and pretty much is what he said. He was just saying, we not, we're not the way it came across was that I'm not interested in what parents have to bring to the table. Yes. You know? Yes. So how do people reach out to you? How do they how do they get in contact with you? Thank you. So people can reach me at my business website, which is www.eduEffectiveness.com. You, you just froze. You just froze for a moment there. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Excuse, just start, start over again because I didn't get any of that you said. Okay. So people can reach me at my business website, Educational Effectiveness Group, and it is www.eduEffectiveness.com. They can also reach me on my signature page, drkathyo.com and Dr. Kathyo on all social media. Yes, and I'll have those links down in the show description so that it make it easy. You can quickly find out actually typing that those uh, those links in. So check yes. out the show description to get more information yes. about Dr. Capio. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I enjoyed the conversation. I know that you're about to go to church. I was raised in the Pentecostal church. <laughs> and so I know about the Holy Ghost, but I know that we they show out. You're going to get a boring moment yes. in the Pentecostal church. So I know, yes. I know you're going to enjoy yourself. And um, and so I know there's, there's definitely um, so much transformation happens in, in, in a church like that. So yes. And I just want to say to you, I'm meeting with educators across the state of Louisiana at this oh, church wow. To, wow. Do a, yes, to do a workshop on the educational system. This church is having a learner's conference. So even though I'm speaking for the service, I'm also doing a workshop 
with parents and educators from around the city. I love it. And that definitely speaks to getting parents involved in the process, right? Yes, yes. Which I talk about in my book, Why Schools Fumble, um, Mm -hmm. applying the end zone mindset to school improvement, which includes parents, educators, and extended family and their role in uh, moving more students into the academic end zone. So thank you so much for this time. You're welcome. And thank you for being on the show. And um, I just can't wait to put this uh, podcast episode up because I think that we need to hear more uh, and we need to just put more attention on our teachers. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. And especially the, in, the experts that are trying to um, make education better and trying to upgrade already the, the, what we're doing in terms of education so we can educate better. Right, right. Yes, yes. Thank right. you. Well, thank you.